Good morning and welcome again. We're glad that you're here today. If you're visiting, we want you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. We're always glad to have visitors with us. We're thankful for the number of people that have placed membership in recent months, and it may be the case that you are looking for a church home, and if so, we want to invite you to consider the work here. We would love to have you come and be a part of the work. We think that we have a lot of good things going on. We have a lot of great activities, a lot of good work, and so we would love to have you come and be a part of that. We're going to be looking at the 16th chapter of the book of Acts in our study today, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 down through verse 34 in our study as we think about the prison evangelist. When you look at the, the life, the preaching, if you please, of Paul and his fellow laborers, one of the things that stands out is the fact that they looked for opportunities wherever they may have been. And so we're going to be talking about that in a moment or two. I do want to begin our study in just a moment, but before doing so, I want to make mention of the fact that I know that many of our young people are back at school now, and young people today are faced with a lot of temptations, a lot of difficulties, and so we want to encourage them to remember who they are, and as parents, grandparents, as friends, we want to be praying for them because they have a very tough road. It's not easy being a young person today. And so I think that we would do well to keep our young folks in our prayers on a regular basis. Let's look at Acts chapter 16 now as we think about the prison evangelist. I want us to look at the account of Paul and Silas imprisoned in a Philippian jail. And the Bible tells us that as a result of their imprisonment. Some great things occurred. They used this opportunity to convert a jailer and his household. I want to begin by talking about the fierceness of their imprisonment. In order for us to appreciate the events that unfold in Acts chapter 16, we need to understand to some degree the setting or the background of the events that are recorded by Luke in the long ago. In Acts chapter 16, the Bible tells us that Paul had received what has been called the Macedonian call. He saw in a vision a man, and the Bible tells us that this man stood and pleaded with Paul and said, come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul immediately responded positively to this invitation. The Bible tells us that Paul and Silas, his fellow laborers, made the trip to Philippi, which, according to Luke, was the foremost city of that part of Macedonia. It was a colony. And the Bible says that they were staying in that city for some days. It was here that Paul and Silas had the opportunity to reach out to a lady by the name of Lydia. And she and her household were converted to the cause of Christ. And then down in verse 16, the Bible tells us that as they went to prayer, they came in contact with a young girl that had a spirit of divination. She was a slave girl. 
And Luke tells us that she had brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. Now, in this narrative, Luke tells us that the Apostle Paul commanded this spirit, this spirit of divination, to come out from her. And when that occurred, her masters became enraged. And the reason was because they saw their profit, their hope of profit, was gone. Sometimes, if you want to really infuriate somebody, just get into their pocketbook. And that's what Paul and Silas did. And so these folks were very mad. And so the text tells us that they were dragged into the marketplace and they were accused of being troublemakers. In verse 21, Luke says that here's what was said about them. They teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Now, historically speaking, Roman lictors would take rods and inflict punishment on the backs of those that were deemed worthy of this type of punishment. This is one of three occasions that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 as having been beaten with rods. And the Bible tells us that they had many stripes laid on them. And so Paul and Silas are beaten. And then the Bible tells us that the authorities threw them into prison and commanded the jailer to keep them securely. Verse 24, having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. The inner prison would have been like a dungeon. There were actually three parts to a prison and Paul and Silas were placed in the inner prison, that is, like a basement or a dungeon. And some have said that the inner prison, the dungeon, the basement would have had little light, may have been hard to breathe. And so you think about these men being in a dark, dingy, maybe dusty, dirty environment. I want you to look with me now at verse 25. We talk about the fierceness of their imprisonment. They have been mistreated. As, as a matter of fact, Paul, when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 at verse 2, would talk about how he had been shamefully or spitefully treated at Philippi. And that's what he's talking about in writing to those people. And so, we want to now think about their faith during imprisonment. The fierceness of their imprisonment, but their faith during imprisonment. Note, if you would, what is said in verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing praises to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Had you been in that situation, what would you have done? Imagine, if you can, what other prisoners under similar conditions did in days gone by. What do prisoners do today? Well, these men did two very specific things. Number one, they offered supplications or prayers to God. So here were individuals that in spite of their ill treatment, their intense suffering, 
I mean, you have to understand, here were men, they were in a dark, dungy, dirty prison. Their backs have been lacerated, probably whelps on their backs. They're hurting, they're bleeding. They may, they may have been hungry, they might have been thirsty. It may have been the case that they were from the vantage point of temperature, they may have been cold, they may have been hot. They were, they were in vile conditions. But they began praying to God. Paul had been a Jew. And no doubt he was familiar with what David had said in Psalm 55 at verse 22 or verse 17. When he said, evening, morning, and noon will I pray and cry aloud. You ever thought about how much Paul depended on prayer to God? Read his epistles and note if you would the number of occasions Paul talks about prayer. You find him oftentimes praying for others. There are occasions when he would write and he would ask people to pray for him. The Thessalonians come to mind. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 25, he would say, brethren, pray for us. In Colossians chapter 4, he would encourage those people to continue steadfastly in prayer, watching therein in thanksgiving, and then he would say, praying also for us. And so Paul was a person of prayer, and I think Paul and Silas both were men of prayer. But then there's a second thing. Not only did they pray or offer supplications to God, but they sang to God. Now, the text says that the prisoners were listening to them. And that word listen or listening is an important term. It carries with it the idea of listening eagerly. One writer says that the prisoners, as they listened, they were listening intently, eagerly. It's the kind of listening that one does and it literally thrills the soul. They were listening to a sermon, if you please, a sermon in song. Now I want you to contrast what they were hearing from the mouths of Paul and Silas. Contrast that to probably what the prisoners had heard from other fellow inmates. Don't you know that they heard a lot of cursing? Don't you know that there were a lot of horrible things that were spoken by those that were inmates, and yet these men, their reaction was completely different. Here they are praying to God, singing praises to God. What does that say to us? It says that their faith was great. I mean, these men were people of faith. Their faith unshaken by the events that were occurring in their lives. Sometimes problems happen, troubles, trials come our way, and what happens? Our faith is shaken. We're knocked to our knees. And yet, Paul and Silas, in the midst of this adversity, what do they do? They turn to God. What, what should we do? Turn to God in times of difficulty. But then I want you to see in the third place the fruit of their imprisonment. While in prison, Paul and Silas have the opportunity to share the gospel. They become prison evangelists. And this is not the only time that Paul uses 
the opportunity to share the gospel in prison. He did this on a number of occasions, and no doubt there were many people that had the opportunity to hear the gospel of Christ from the mouth of Paul. So, first of all, consider with me, if you would, the midnight earthquake. Verse 25 says, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing praises to God or singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. The keeper of the prison awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Now let me just pause here for a minute. Here you have this unbelievable action or activity that occurs, an earthquake. The earthquake was of such magnitude that the foundation is shaken. The prison doors open. The chains are loosened. They had been placed in stocks. And those who were in stocks, when jailers placed prisoners' legs in stocks, it made it impossible to walk. As a matter of fact, some would say that those who were placed in stocks would have to lie face down or maybe lie on their back and their legs would be spread apart. Well, all at once, you have an earthquake, the doors opening, the chains being loosened, and the jailer. What does the Bible say about the jailer? What happens to him? in the midst of this unbelievable action or activity. The Bible says he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Did you know that in ancient times, the Romans and the Greeks thought it was an honorable thing to take one's life in adverse circumstances? In other words, this guy thought the prisoners, Paul and Silas, were gonna escape. He had been placed, or rather they had been placed under his custody. He had charge, he had been given charge for their welfare. Had they escaped, his life would have been required. And so rather than die at the hands of another Roman soldier, he's going to take his own life. And Paul says, look, do yourself no harm. Why? Because we're all here. We haven't gone anywhere. Now, Having noticed that, I want you to note in verse 29 what is said. The Bible says that he called for light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He calls for torches. Maybe the torches had olive oil on them, allowed them to bring light into this dark, dusty, dingy dungeon. And here's what he asked. We have his inquiry. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, having said that, I want you to think with me for just a moment about the midnight evangelist. We talk about the midnight earthquake, and all of these events are occurring at once, and now these men have the opportunity to do what? To share the gospel. This man asked the question, what must I do to be saved? Two things about this question. Number one, it was a profound question. Some may speculate, well, 
Maybe he's asking Paul and Silas, what do I need to do to save my physical life? <clears throat> Some would say that's, that's what the jailer has in mind. It seems to me, though, that what the jailer has in mind is his spiritual welfare. You have to understand that the Roman world, in ancient times, the people of Rome were paganistic. Many of the Roman Caesars, Domitian for one, they viewed themselves as deity. Domitian in the latter part of the first century wanted to be addressed as Lord and God. And so here's a guy that has a pagan idolatrous background. Now, no doubt he has heard, he has witnessed Paul and Silas, their faith. He has heard them talk probably about Jesus. We would infer that. And so in light of all of these events that are taking place, he wants to know, what do I need to do to be saved? So note what they do. Note what they say. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Number one, here's what you need to see. There is what I would call the foundation of faith. If you were going to talk to somebody that didn't know anything about God or Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Bible, where would you begin? If somebody came up to you and said, what do I need to do to be saved? I hear a lot about being saved, and I hear, I hear people talk about being saved. What do I need to do? And from their background's vantage point, they know nothing about Christianity. They know nothing about Jesus Christ. They don't know anything about the one true living God. Where would you begin? Is it not the case that you'd have to lay a foundation? You remember when you started grade school? Today it'd be kindergarten. When children start kindergarten, what do they do? They begin learning their ABCs, don't they? What, what are the teachers doing? They're laying a foundation. They begin learning their ABCs, and then they take those ABCs and they make words out of them. And then they begin stringing sentences together. Well, what are they doing? They're laying a foundation. Same thing's true with, with regard to mathematics. A child learns numerals. And then they begin to learn to add and subtract. And then from that, they learn to multiply and divide. Well, what's happening? A foundation's being laid. Why was it imperative that a foundation be laid? Because this guy didn't know anything. First of all, he needed to know about the one in whom he ought to believe. And Paul and Silas said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Here's what Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So what did they have to do? They had to begin teaching them the Bible. Now, having said that, look at verse 32. In verse 32, here's what Luke says. Then they spoke the word of the Lord. To, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So you have the foundation being laid, and then you have what I would call the fundamentals. That is, the facts as they relate to the faith. You see, when Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, 
the word Lord, the term Lord. Carries with it the idea of a ruler, one who reigns. It would imply the deity of Jesus Christ. And so here are Paul and Silas, and they are speaking the word of the Lord to this jailer. Now, let's put ourselves in their position and let's just think for a minute about here's a guy that doesn't know anything. Don't you think it would have been incumbent on them to say, hey, look, there was a man named Jesus and he was born in Bethlehem of Judea some years ago and he came for the purpose of saving people from their sins according to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. As a matter of fact, he came to seek and to save the lost. This man, Jesus, was deemed to be the Son of God. As a matter of fact, when he was crucified, one of the Roman centurions cried out and said, truly, this man was the Son of God. He was not just a good man. He wasn't just a social leader. He wasn't just a great preacher. He was the Son of God. And the Son of God came to seek and to save the lost. He came to die for sin. He came to die for your sins. You need to understand that you're a sinner, that sin separates you from God. And there's just one God. There's just one Lord. If you look at verse 31, Paul said, believe on the Lord. That's singular in nature. Not Lord's, Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Hebrew writer would say that Jesus tasted death for every man. So they're laying a foundation. They're setting forth the fundamentals of the faith that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised again the third day that he's ascended to heaven. Now as they laid the foundations of the faith, and as they began discussing some of the fundamentals, the facts about the faith, don't you know that they talked about the church, the kingdom of God, because after all, those who become followers of Jesus Christ are a part of this divine institution? As a matter of fact, back in Acts chapter 8, when Philip went down to the city of Samaria, the Bible says that he preached Christ to those people and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. That's just a part of the redemptive plan. And so they're stressing these foundational truths to this man. Now having said that, look at verse 33. In verse 33, let's talk for a minute about the forgiveness that is available through the faith, that is through this system of faith. Luke said he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. The implication is that their stripes had not been washed earlier, that they were bleeding, suffering, because of the rods that had been laid upon their backs. And now this man is demonstrating a penitent heart. He's reaching out to care for them, physically speaking. Luke said, not only did he wash their stripes, but immediately he and all his family 
You remember what Luke said back in verse 32? They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Now he says that all of his family members were baptized into Christ. Now wait a minute. Did you read anything in the text about baptism prior to verse 33? Was anything said about that? Not one word. As a matter of fact, all Luke said was that when the jailer cried out, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved along with your household. Well, there had to be a beginning point, didn't there? They had to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They had to come to an understanding that this man, the Christ, was who he claimed to be. They had to come to an understanding of the fact that they were in sin and needed a Savior. Because the Bible tells us that sin separates us from Almighty God, Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. Now somebody asked the question, why then were they baptized? They were baptized so that they might enjoy the forgiveness of sins. Why is it so imperative to be baptized? Because bap baptism puts us into Christ. Furthermore, it puts us or places us in the body of Christ. You need to be baptized into Jesus Christ first and foremost, to contact the blood of Christ. The Bible says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1, 7. You can't be saved separate and apart from the blood of Christ. And the only way to contact the blood of Christ is to go where that blood was shed. It was shed in death, John 19, 34. And Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, know you not that all we who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. So when we're baptized into Christ, we contact the blood of Christ. And then secondly, we are placed in the body of Christ, which is called the church of Christ. How do I know that? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul said, by one body, or rather by one spirit, were you all baptized into one body. What's the body? He's the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1, 18. So this man and his household were baptized into Jesus Christ. Why were they baptized? So that they might be saved from sin. Mark 16, 16. Here's what Jesus said. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's called a quotation. It's not my interpretation of what the Son of God said in the long ago. That's a quotation. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. On Pentecost Day... When the apostle Peter preached the first gospel sermon, he said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. In other words, for forgiveness. In Acts twenty-two sixteen, when Paul recounted his conversion to Christ, he said he was instructed by Ananias to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins. You can't be forgiven outside of Christ. You can't be forgiven outside his spiritual body, the church. And the only way to get into Christ and to get in the church of Christ is by being baptized into Christ. When you're baptized into Christ, like the jailer and his family, you become children of Almighty God. You enjoy all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Verse 34 says, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Here was a man that had been a pagan. He had been an idolater. 
His family members, no doubt, steeped in idolatry. But now he's a believer. Now he is a member of the body of Christ. He is a child of the living God. He is an heir of God, an heir of Christ, a joint heir with Christ. He enjoys all the blessings and favors of Christianity. When I look at the life of the Apostle Paul, when I look at the life of Silas and some of the other saints in the first century, I see people looking for opportunities to share the gospel. When you read Colossians chapter 4, and Paul wrote the book of Colossians several years after this event, he told those folks to continue steadfastly in prayer. And then he said, I want you to pray for us. Why, Paul? That we might have an opportunity to share the gospel. Let me tell you what, wherever Paul was, he was looking for opportunities to share the gospel, even in prison. He did it time and again. Here was a man that had been outside of Christ, and now he's inside Christ. He is a part of the family of God. I want to ask you today, have you done what the jailer did nearly 2,000 years ago? Have you done what his family did? Have you become a child of God? Have you obeyed the gospel of Christ? When, when we look at the, at, at the book of Acts, the book of Acts has been called the hub of the Bible because literally you have the birth, infancy, and growth of the New Testament church. For 2,000 years, the church has been, grow, has been growing and going strong. The church is alive and well today. And those who become members of the church are those who have responded in faith and obedience to the will of God. Let me close by asking this question. Are you a member of the church? Have you obeyed the simple truths of the gospel? Read the book of Acts. We talk about Acts being a book of conversions. Every conversion story in the book of Acts is complete with people believing Jesus to be the Son of God, repenting of their sins, confessing his name, and being baptized into Christ every time. Now I understand that not every step in God's redemptive plan is outlined in the conversion story, but you read the record yourself, and you note the people that responded to the gospel. Note what they did. Every single one of them baptized into Christ. Baptism is not an outward sign of an inward faith. Baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. It is preceded by faith, repentance, and confession. Those who have been baptized are instructed to be faithful until death. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you to come to Christ. If you're here today and you're not faithful to the cause of Christ, we want to encourage you to come to Christ. We want to encourage you to come home. Come back to a loving God who will abundantly pardon according to 1 John 1, 9. Would you come as we stand and sing?